right, we are back and taking a look at things we set aside to talk about on the radio, starting with one piece from August 31st, 2002. If my memory serves me correctly, Ms. Merlin, we were interviewing Cosmo Garvin of the Sacramento News and Review and, and Kim Alexander of the California Voter Foundation about voting issues, which are still with us two decades later. I don't believe this piece made our, uh, our broadcast back at that time, so it's been a bit of a, bit of a lag. The headline in this piece from the San Francisco Chronicle is that ex-members of Soviet bloc clamoring to join NATO. This headline, of course, resonates today with the war in Ukraine, which certain leftist, I guess you'd call them sympathizers or Russophiles or fans of Putin, I'm, I'm not sure, have tried to pin on the West, at least in part because Ukraine had made noise about joining NATO. And the U.S. did assure Gorbachev and other members of the Russian hierarchy back in the day that we were not going to reach out and try and pull former Soviet bloc nations into NATO. Well, we did anyway. Left out of discussion is the fact that these nations wanted to join NATO. The article from that time noted that um, Russia had been irked by the admission of Poland, Hungary, and the Czech Republic to NATO in 1999. At that point, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania all former Soviet socialist republics were keen to join NATO, along with Romania and Bulgaria, former members of the Warsaw Pact, Slovakia, the other half of what used to be Czechoslovakia, also Warsaw Pact, and Slovenia, which was never part of the Warsaw Pact because it was in the independent state of then Yugoslavia. Anyway, it's certainly true that the U.S. and European allies thumbed their nose at Russia and wanting to have everybody join together in NATO. But as we pointed out on this program, I think a year or so ago, it looks as though Finland and Sweden, two nations long noted for their independence and neutrality, were also making noise in the wake of the Ukrainian war about how, you know, they, they too might they too might want to join NATO. And yes, Mr. Milton, that, that is a thought. Radio Parallax might also consider putting in an application to join NATO. But we, we feel that our safety lies in both the Pacific and Atlantic Oceans, which significantly reduces the possibility of Russian tanks rolling into the studio. Some articles about China from about a decade ago caught our attention. A study, an economic study of China showed that its wealth gap had widened so much that as of 2012, China was one of the world's most unequal nations outside of sub-Saharan Africa, which certainly seems to imply that the Chinese Communist Party has failed to strike an effective blow for world socialism, at least uh, uh, equalization of incomes in their country, which does seem a bit ironic. Now, we talked some weeks back in this program about how a lot of people were pointing out, um, well, (laughs) it was being pointed out in the Bush administration, and we revisited it, that the fascist regimes had a lot of things in common and a lot of folks were looking around America and saying, well, there does seem to be a fascist element afoot in the land. So I was really intrigued to find a piece that was from The Economist. Uh, This is actually, in this case, from December of 2007, taking a look at a new book about Mao Zedong. It referenced a book out then titled Mao, The Unknown Story, was admitted by The Economist to be an unsympathetic portrait of Chairman Mao, who they described as being responsible for 70 million deaths, comma, more than any other 20th century leader. The actual number is a bit in dispute, but considering the large population of China, it might be credible. 
Now, it is curious that most people attribute uh, China's modern success economically to the policies of Deng Xiaoping, who took over after Mao died in 1976. Yet China's current leader, Xi Jinping, continues to uh, immortalize Mao as the George Washington of China. Deng Xiaoping doesn't even merit an image on a coin. But this discussion on Mao has uh, more relevance, uh, I, I think, to modern America than I would have recognized back in 2007, or perhaps that's because America's taken some turns since 2007 that make one prone to comparisons with the likes of Mao Zedong. The essay in The Economist that I'm citing was a, t- was a look at Mao and the art of how he managed things, and it made comparisons to Alfred P. Sloan, who was the head of General Motors back in the 50s and 60s. He wrote a book titled My Years with General Motors in 1963, and he's generally acknowledged as the architect of the well-run, decentralized global corporation. Taking a look at Mao's management style, the newspaper noted the disparity between his performance and reputation is instructive, for behind it are four key elements which all bad managers might profit from. And yes, think of Donald Trump, the bad manager, as we go through these. Number one, Mao had a powerful, mendacious slogan. He was born a modestly well-off villager. Mao lived like an emperor. Later in life, carried on litters by peasants, surrounded by concubines, and placated by everyone. Yet his most famous slogan was, Serve the people. This paradox illustrates one aspect of his brilliance, his ability to justify his actions, no matter how entirely self-serving, as being done for others. Psychologists call this cognitive dissonance, the ability to make a compelling, heartfelt case for one thing while doing another. Remind you of anybody? Number two, Mao was a ruthless media manipulator. He knew not just how to make a point, but also how to get it out. Through posters, the Little Red Book, and education circles, his message was constantly reinforced. Where the broom does not reach, he said, the dust will not vanish of itself. It's noted this process of self-aggrandizement is often dismissed as a personality cult, but it's hard to distinguish from the modern business practice of building brand value. They note that chief executives and corporations are not in a position to crush the media, as Mao did. Nevertheless, his handling of them offers some lessons. He talked only to sycophant journalists, and his appeal in the West came mainly from hagiographies written by reporters whose careers were built upon the access they had to him. For some reason, Fox News is coming to mind at this point. Number three item relative to Mao's management style, sacrifice of friends and colleagues. Who are our friends? Who are our enemies? This is a question of the first importance, Mao once wrote. Alfred P. Sloan would have agreed. He worried that favoritism would come at the expense of the single most valuable component of management, the objective evaluation of performance. Mao had a different goal. He did not want people too close to him, and therefore close to power. So being Mao's friend often proved more dangerous than being his enemy. One purged followed another. Promotions and demotions were zealously monitored. Bundles of incentives were given and withdrawn. They note some demotions might have turned out well. Deng Xiaoping's exile in a tractor factory may have helped him understand business and thus rebuild the economy. But that was an unintended benefit. And finally, Mao substituted uh, activity for achievement. They note that from the anti-rightist movement in the late 50s to the Great Leap Forward, which was a failed agriculture and industrial experiment in the early 60s, from which a famine killed tens of millions, to the Cultural Revolution in the late 1960s, Mao was never short of a plan. Under Mao, China didn't drift, it careened. The propellant came from the top. Policies were poor, 
execution dreadful, and leadership misdirected. But each initiative seemed to create a perpetual force as everyone looked toward Beijing to see how to march forward or avoid being trampled. The business equivalent of this is restructuring. The broader, the better. Anyway, I think it's fair to say that those in America who are not too fan of democracy um, have some role models they can look to from the left as well as from the right. We were privileged to have had David Wallachinsky on this program, I believe, more than once back in the aughts. He used to do an annual review of the world's worst dictators, something which Parade Magazine has discontinued as of at least a decade ago, but it was always provocative reading and may have prompted this article in Mental Floss from May-June of 2011 by Carl Shaw, which cited 10 awful ideas from the world's worst people. I think we just have to do a couple of these. Number one was, before you invade a country, send the president a love letter. Yes, at one point, Idi Amin sent Tanzania's president, Julius Nyeri, a love letter in an effort to lull the leader into a false sense of security. Idi Amin wrote, I want to assure you that I love you very much, and if you have been a woman, I would have considered marrying you, though your head is full of gray hairs. But as you are a man, that possibility does not arise. Idi Amin later launched a full-scale invasion of Tanzania. Yours truly once found himself on the same aircraft as Julius Nyeri, flying from, oddly enough, Burma to Bangladesh. Wandering around the cabin of the aircraft with a beer in hand, I did take a look at this distinguished black gentleman and... Nodded my head, he nodded back. I knew he looked familiar, but I didn't recognize him as then former president of Tanzania. Was he in first class? No, he was not in first class. This, this plane did not have a first class section. Oh, because I was wondering what you were doing in first class. My memory's a little bit vague. Maybe there was a first class. Maybe I wanted into it. I don't know. I do know that had I been lucky enough to actually engage Julius Nyeri in conversation, Idi Amin probably would not have come up. Would you have told him you would have married him if he was a woman? <laughs> you know, the coverage of Idi Amin was something that did puzzle me back in the day. He was nuts. He was stupid. He was murderous. He was overtly racist. Yet his bloody buffoonery, it got a lot of negative publicity, but not as much as it deserved. This is a guy, by the way, that at one point decided Indians, who were the merchants in Uganda, needed to go. Pack up. Leave. Now, this, this compared pretty unfavorably, I would say, to the apartheid that then existed in South Africa. South Africa never suggested to its Indian population that you just get the hell out of here. Yet so many progressives that I knew back in the 1970s were all aghast at what was going on in South Africa, which, which, which certainly needed change, but were strangely silent about the buffoonery going on up in Uganda. And then there's Ney Win, the longtime dictator of then Burma, in fact, I still call it Burma. The, the new regime calls it Myanmar. I'm going to stay with Burma. Notes the article, Realizing that luck favors the superstitious, Burmese General Ney Win used numerology to guide his rule during the 1980s. In particular, Ney Win was obsessed with the lucky number, in quotes, 9. He declared September 9th, a national holiday in Burma. Well, he's double-dipping. That would be 9-9. Nine, nine. He apparently made his pilots circle nine times before landing, and he even tore down his palace to build a new one with nine-foot ceilings. In 1987, after consulting his astrologer, Naywin withdrew Burma's currency from circulation and introduced new banknotes. Instead of 50s and 100s, he had 45s and 90 chat denominations 
both divisible by nine, by the way. The move caused utter economic havoc and widespread financial ruin. Yours truly did visit Burma the very next year in 1988, and yes, indeed, I have currency from that era in 45s and 90s. And yes, the country was in an economic shambles as part of the fact that previous currency was now called invalid. But the piece points out that luckily for Ne Win, he had 99 Buddhist monks on hand when he made his last public appearance back in 2001. Mr. McMillan? Number nine, number nine, number nine, number nine, number nine, number nine. And then there's Albania and its former president, Enver Hoxha. Notes the piece, one of the perks of being a dictator is that you can indulge your most curmudgeonly instincts. And Albanian dictator Hoxha took full advantage. During his reign over the country from 1944 to 1985, the grouchy tyrant banned everything he didn't like. It turned out to be quite a few things. Hoja outlawed growing beards, listening to Western pop music, kissing on television, and travel to foreign countries. Hoja also made it illegal to own television sets and private cars, which were luxuries that no Albanian could afford then anyway. One thing he did like, other than banning things, was concrete. Hoja had 750,000 concrete bunkers built around the country. As I understand it, these concrete bunkers were places where soldiers could go and, you know, fend off invaders if anyone decided they needed to invade Albania. I also understand that these concrete bunkers uh, serve the purpose of the parked car when it comes to um, young people seeking places to go out and have a tryst. And then there's Chairman Mao, whom we were just talking about. Back in 1964, China became the first nation in the world to throw a weapons of mass destruction party. After years of fruitless attempts, China successfully detonated its first atomic bomb on October 16, 1964. And several days of wild rejoicing followed. Mao was so moved by the event that he wrote a poem to commemorate that occasion, which consists of the following. Atomic bomb goes off when it is told. Ah, what boundless joy. We're going to have to run that poem past Dr. Andy Jones and see what he's got to say about it, but not today. Reportedly, later in the 1960s, Mao confessed to AIDS that he'd hoped the U.S. would respond by dropping an atomic bomb on China that would kill between 10 and 20 million people. This, he said, would show the rest of the world just how crazy the Americans were. It's an odd thing to hope for. And we often do obituaries on this program. One I don't think we, we, we actually mentioned back in the day was the passing of Daniel Kaminsky. He was described by the New York Times as a security researcher known for his discovery of a fundamental flaw in the fabric of the Internet. Anyway, I want to quote from the piece. It notes that in 2008, Kaminsky was widely hailed as a latter-day digital Paul Revere after he found a serious flaw in the Internet's basic plumbing it could allow skilled coders to take over websites, siphon off bank credentials, or even shut down the Internet. Kaminsky alerted the Department of Homeland Security, executives at Microsoft and Cisco, and other Internet security experts to the problem and helped spearhead a patch. Interesting fellow, Kaminsky. He developed a knack for working with computers as a child. Noted that his childhood paralleled the 1983 movie War Games, in which a young child played by Matthew Broderick unwittingly accesses a U.S. military supercomputer. When Kaminsky was 11, his mother said, she received an angry phone call from someone who identified himself as a network administrator for the Western United States. 
The administrator said someone at her residence was monking around in territories we shouldn't be monking around. Without her knowledge, Kaminsky apparently had been examining military websites. The administrator vowed to punish him by cutting off the family's internet access. His mom warned the administrator that if he made good on his threats, she would take out an advertisement of the San Francisco Chronicle denouncing the Pentagon's security. I will take out an ad, she said. Your security is so crappy, even an 11-year-old can break it. They set a lot of compromise, which was three days of no internet. Notes the obituary, nearly two days after he lost his access to the internet, Kaminsky wound up saving it. He discovered in 2008... A problem with the Internet's basic address system, known as the Domain Name System, or DNS. A dynamic phone book that converts human-friendly web addresses like NewYorkTimes.com and Google.com into their machine-friendly numeric counterparts. He found a way that thieves or spies could covertly manipulate DSN traffic so that a person typing the website for a bank would instead be directed to an imposter site that could steal the user's account number and password. Well, I'm glad they fixed that. Another obituary I'm looking at is that of Ramsey Clark. This is from April of 2001. The former attorney general was noted for becoming quite the legal rebel. Although he once served as attorney general under Lyndon Johnson, he later traveled the world to denounce America's genocidal former interventions and to defend an assortment of war criminals and reviled figures. His courtroom clients included... Iraqi dictator Saddam Hussein, and former Yugoslavian president Slobodan Milosevic. Ramsey Clark's especially interesting to this correspondent because I know for a fact that in 1967, Clark was presented with the draft copies of a book that was about to come out by philosophy professor and investigator Josiah Thompson, which took a look at the JFK assassination. Possibly, the most single devastating critique of the Warren Commission came in one diagram Thompson published showing that the position the Warren Commission put the president in as the fatal blow struck was absolutely not the position he was demonstrably in in Zapruder's legendary film. The stink that this caused led to Ramsey Clark appointing a panel to review the medical data to conclude that everything was okay, which, of course, they dutifully did, even though I think it's fair to say that that is not the case. And sometime back in the odds, we we did a a discussion on this program about how modern art may have in fact been a CIA weapon. We cited for the discussion a piece that appeared in The Independent. This is back in October of 1995, which is just too good to pass up. To quote from this independent piece by Francis Stoner Saunders, for decades in art circles, it was either a rumor or a joke. But now it is confirmed as a fact. The Central Intelligence Agency used American modern art, including the works of such artists as Jackson Pollock, Robert Motherwell, William de Kooning, and Mark Rothko, as a weapon in the Cold War. In the manner of a Renaissance prince, except that it acted secretly, the CIA fostered and promoted American abstract expressionist paintings around the world for more than 20 years. The piece notes the connection is improbable. There was a period in the 1950s and 60s when the great majority of Americans disliked or even despised modern art. President Truman subbed up the popular view when he said, If that's art, I'm a hottentot. Uh, That is a somewhat politically incorrect term at this point. Today, Truman would have had to say, If that's art, then I'm a member of the San people. But you get the point. 
As for the artists themselves, many were ex-communists, barely acceptable in the America of the McCarthy era, and certainly not the sort of people normally likely to receive U.S. government backing. Why did the CIA support them? Because in the propaganda war with the Soviet Union, this new artistic movement could be held up as proof of the creativity, the intellectual freedom, and the cultural power of the U.S. Russian art, strapped in the communist ideological straitjacket, could not compete. Notes the piece, the existence of this policy, rumored and disputed for many years, has now been confirmed for the first time by former CIA officials. Unknown to the artists, the new American art was secretly promoted under a policy known as the Long Leash, arrangement similar in some ways to indirect CIA backing of the journal Encounter. And for that matter, I would say the backing of Paris Review. Anyway, I don't want to go on and on about this piece, but I do <laughs> want to close by noting that the decision to include culture and art in the U.S. Cold War arsenal was taken as soon as the CIA was founded in 1947. Dismayed at the appeal communism had for many intellectuals and artists in the West, the new agency set up a division, the Propaganda Assets Inventory, which at its peak could influence more than 800 newspapers, magazines, and public information organizations. They joked that it was like a Wurlitzer jukebox. When the CIA pushed a button, it could hear whatever tune it wanted played across the world. In fact, the head of the CIA back in that era, Frank Wisner, referred to this sort of activity as the mighty Wurlitzer. Of course, we're not the only ones doing this. Uh, the Soviets did it back, and the Russians are still doing it today, and I think that's part of the explanation for how it is Putin's bloody war in Ukraine is being justified in certain quarters. And here's a piece from the Sacramento News and Review, which we, we put aside uh, many years back, piece by Senna Christian, referring to how, well, speculating that corn stoves might, might be an answer to home heating. In what was not, in fact, a satirical piece, the author suggested that uh, taking food, in this case, corn, dried corn, and burning it directly in your stove might be a legitimate alternative to biofuels. Now, biofuels, you know, ethanol in particular, goes back to the Bush administration when all of a sudden Bush got religion and announced that he was going to do some things that were going to help the environment. When two oil men named Bush and Cheney decide they want to get involved with helping the environment, look out. They then set up tax incentives in the various uh, Midwest states to provide lots of money to people who grew corn so they can convert it into ethanol. It's not a good conversion. It takes something like the equivalent of four gallons of gasoline to create five gallons of ethanol. Anyway, in this screwball piece, it, it's, it ends up advocating for burning corn directly. Yes, putting food in your stove to stay warm. The piece noted that oh, when you're, a bonus of this is when you're done, the leftover ash can be used as garden fertilizer. As can wood ash, which contains potassium. Good Lord. Anyway, it would seem many years later that this lunatic idea did not catch on, thank goodness. With my girlfriend, she burns food in the kitchen all the time. No, Mr. Millen, your girlfriend burning food in the kitchen is not what this is referring to. I didn't think she was helping me burn. <laughs> no, she's not. Oh. Well, Mr. Millen tells me we've only got about three minutes left, so being Radio Parallax, I think we'll go out with When Opposites Attack. Artistic Rivalries That Got Ugly, a piece from Mental Floss, from circa 2009. The rivalry in this case was between Voltaire and Jean-Jacques Rousseau. The piece notes that the two philosophers-slash-writers started sniping at each other in the 1750s. 
At that time, Voltaire was an established leader of French philosophical circles. And Rousseau was just a newbie. But the balance of power began to shift when Voltaire moved to Rousseau's native city of Geneva in 1754. Although Rousseau had left Geneva in 1728, he remained devoted to the city's strict Calvinist standards, which included a ban on public plays. So when he heard Voltaire was not only putting on private dramas, but also urging city authorities to admit plays into the city, Rousseau wrote an outraged letter condemning theatricals. In return, an annoyed Voltaire wrote to his philosopher friends saying that Rousseau had only criticized the theater because Rousseau had written a bad play. At that point, Rousseau went off the deep end. He dipped his pen in vitriol and scratched out a letter to Voltaire that begins bluntly, I do not like you, sir. He went on to outline all the perceived slights he received from Voltaire and concluded, In a word, I hate you. Voltaire thought Rousseau had lost his mind and public advised his fellow philosopher a course of soothing baths and restorative broths. Henceforth, Voltaire would not miss an opportunity to slam his enemy. He mocked the plots of Rousseau's novels. He insinuated Rousseau and inflated his resume and bashed Rousseau's book, Julie, as silly, middle-class, dirty-minded, and boring. Finally, in 1764, Voltaire wielded the most powerful weapon he possessed, a secret about Rousseau he'd picked up. Using a pseudonym, Voltaire wrote an open letter accusing Rousseau of abandoning his five children at the doors of an orphanage. The accusation was shocking and true. In a politician-worthy statement of denial, he could only claim, I have never exposed or caused to be exposed any infant at the door of an orphanage. Now, he was telling the truth with this, but only because the children had in fact been taken inside the orphanage. Further scrambling to justify his actions, Rousseau responded with his book, Confessions, which is now recognized as one of the first true autobiographies. So an ugly quarrel, it seems, marked the invention of a new literary form. does it for today's program. We do want to forward promote some interesting people we plan to bring to you in the weeks to come. These would include Michael Trackman, whom we spoke to back in 2006 about his excellent book, The Supreme's Greatest Hits. He will weigh in on what's currently afoot in the Supreme Court of the United States. Professor Peter Dale Scott has offered to join us come late February. Author John Newman is also in the pipeline. He's going to be interesting, as will Dr. Scott. And at some point along the way, Professor Josiah Thompson, who we mentioned earlier in the program. All three of these uh, gentlemen will be talking to us about things related to the death of the 35th President of the United States, John Kennedy. I think I'll close with a quote, which I think summarizes uh, our, our first segment in today's program from historian John Barry, who said, when you mix politics and science, you get politics. This program, A Mixture of Science and Politics, which did retain some science, was produced by Edward McMillan. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I am your faithful servant, Douglas Everett. We'll see you again next week. Hey, it's the man right.